such an appropriate song for this morning. If your Bibles are open to 2 Corinthians 5, two weeks ago I began a message. It was supposed to be two-parter, but of course last Sunday I was in the hospital and not here, but I want to go back to the theme that we, that we started. The Apostle Paul in verse number 14 talked about the subject of motivation. For the love of Christ, he said, constraineth us. Everything that he did, every sacrifice that he made, every journey that he undertook, every burden that it was laid upon him, every time he suffered for the cause of Christ, he said there's a reason why we do it all. There's a reason why we do not quit. There's a reason why we do not turn back. He said it is the love of Christ that constraineth us. Motivation is, is why we do what we do. We all have them in various areas of life. And Paul is laying out for everyone to read uh, in the scriptures, here's my motivation. It's not fame. It's not power. It's not prestige. It's not money. It's not position. It's nothing else, nothing more and nothing less than the love of Christ. That word constraineth by way of reminding us means something that arrests and holds us prisoner. It, it is something that so grabs a hold of our being that we cannot shake it off. Uh, criticism doesn't change it. Uh, opposition doesn't change it. Disappointment doesn't change it. Uh, obstacles don't change it. It's just always there and it consumes our being. It is that which drives us forward with singular focus. To be constrained means that we are so consumed with something that it controls our very being and it judges everything that we say and everything that we do. Motive is important. It is important to the Lord. The last time we looked at this subject, we spent a little bit of time in Revelation chapter 2. And you do not have to turn there, but the Savior was chiding the church at Ephesus, an entire church. On the surface, it was a good church, doctrinally very, very sound. It was a church that practiced biblical separation. They tried those that said they were apostles and found them to be false. It was a church that endured. The word patient is used several times as the Savior describes this church. Uh, it is a church that had been serving Christ for decades, and yet the Savior said, nevertheless, in spite of all of these amazing good things, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You're not doing it for the same reason you used to do it. You've walked away from that. Remember, therefore, the Savior said, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. Get this straightened out, he said, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. The candlestick was a picture in the first chapter of Revelation of the various seven churches these letters were written to. Jesus said, I know you're doctrinally sound. I know you're biblically separated. Uh, I understand that you've been patient, you've endured, but your motives are all wrong. You're not doing it because you love Christ anymore. You're not doing it because Christ loves you. And you better get that right with God or I'll take your candlestick out. I'd rather have no church than a dead church. That's what the Savior's saying. That's a rather strong statement. So we understand this subject of motive. We understand that's important. Can I draw your attention one more time to verse 14? For the love of Christ 
constraineth us. It does not say for the love for Christ constraineth us. Should we love the Lord? Yes or no? It's the first commandment. The greatest commandment the Savior said is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy might. He said that is the first and the greatest of all commandments. Um, uh, uh, you know, oh, how I love Jesus and, and my Jesus, I love thee and so forth. Certainly we ought to love the Lord, but here's, here's the problem. If, if my love for the Lord is my motivation, my love for the Lord is not stable. See, I've got this thing called flesh, this sinful nature that that rages against anything of the Holy Spirit. Galatians put it this way. The flesh, that's our old nature, lust against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. These are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. How many of you know you're supposed to pray without ceasing? How many know that? Okay, how many do that? Um, how many know you're supposed, to, you're supposed to meditate on the scriptures day and night? How many know that? How many do that every day? Couple. There's a lot of things we know to do, and we just, we just don't do them. You, you say, why? Because my flesh doesn't want to do what God wants me to do. It's always warring against it. There are times that, that my love for Christ is strong. It is white hot. It is passionate. I, I'm realizing uh, who he is and, and what he's done for me. And, and my heart is just filled with that passionate gratitude for Christ. But I'll be honest with you, there are, there are other times that it, it's not where it ought to be. The Savior warned in Matthew chapter 24 that in the end times, because iniquity is going to abound, and that's our world today, he said the love of many will wax cold. As human beings, uh, our love for Christ is seldom what it ought to be. Now, someday we get to heaven, it'll be exactly what it ought to be. Won't that be great? There'll be no ups and downs. There'll be no peaks. There'll be no valleys. But in the meantime, we still struggle with that. Paul did not say, for the love for Christ constraineth us, because he knew that that's not dependable. He said, for the love of Christ constraineth us. God's love for us has no peaks and it has no valleys. It has no beginning and it has no ending. Romans chapter 8 ends up with those marvelous words, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is no no one and nothing, neither height nor depth, uh, no, no angels, no principalities, no powers. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In my opening prayer, I paid homage to the fact there's not a thing that I can do to make God love me more, and there's not a thing that I can do to make God love me less. We have a hard time with that because in the human realm, uh, that, that is just kind of the way it works. Sometimes people love us a lot. Sometimes those same people don't love us at all. It's up and down. It's in and out. It's off and on. It's hot and cold. God's love for us is never that way. It is white hot. 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it'll be like that for all of eternity. Amen. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man should lay down his life for his friend. Um, to, to, to try to wrap our minds around how much God loves us is humanly impossible, but it's something that we ought to try to do. Amen. And we know God doesn't love us because we're so lovable. We're not. Oh, sometimes we are. 
once a year, something like that, Valentine's Day, whatever. But uh, let's, let's face it, we're ornery, we're difficult, uh, we fail him, uh, we, 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 we don't listen to him, we're, we're disobedient, we don't get along with each other and all these other things uh, that enter into it. But God still loves us and he'll never cease, he'll never decrease it, he'll, he'll, never, he'll never end it. And Paul said, that love is what motivates me. Just knowing that God loves me that way. So he says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. But I want us to move on this morning because I want you to see why Paul has that as his motivation. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ constraineth us. And here's why. Because we thus judge. We've examined the evidence. We've thoroughly considered the truth of God's word. And we've reached a verdict we've reached a conclusion because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. I want us to consider some phrases that are contained in, in this verse today. This is why Paul's uh, 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 motivation was the love of Christ for him. I want to pick out a couple of phrases. First of all, in verse 14, the very last phrase says, then we're all dead. Talking about every person in the world. We're all dead. Now we look around today and I would say that we're all alive. Correct? Nobody's, nobody's being propped up and their eyes held open with toothpicks. We're all living, breathing, sentient beings. But the Bible says that before we got saved, we were spiritually dead. We'll look at some verses uh, in Ephesians in just, just a moment. Paul said, I want you to understand that before God stepped in, before God came to our rescue, we were all spiritually dead. In the last year of World War II, the government of Hungary sold out the Jewish population for a great sum of money and for a promise from the Nazis that they would be left alone if they did so. In that final year of the war, 1944 to 1945, 500,000 Hungarian Jews were loaded onto cattle cars on a train, and they were shipped north into Poland, and they were sent to Auschwitz, one of the, the Nazi empire's most notorious death camps. There was a day in Auschwitz when the trains were unloaded that they would stand there and there was a selection process. Dr. Joseph Mengele, the, the monster doctor of Auschwitz, often was in charge and as people came off, he'd point one way for those that were gonna go straight to the gas chamber and he'd point to the other side for those who would be spared for slave labor or for medical experimentation and it was one way or the other. And he'd often use his riding crop as his pointer for this. But by the time the, the war had progressed in, in 1940, there was very little selection process. Um, it was understood when these trains from Hungary arrived, every single man, every single woman, and every single child was sent directly to the gas chambers. When those people loaded the trains in Budapest and other places in Hungary, they knew they were headed somewhere bad but there's always that hope that springs that maybe we'll survive, maybe we'll be okay, maybe we'll get to stay together. 
The, uh, the, the, the concept of the gas chambers, the Nazis had worked very hard to keep that a secret, though it was kind of known uh, and kind of not known. Those people arrived that day not knowing what awaited them, but in the minds of their captors, they were already condemned. Everybody walking off of those trains was dead already. We've heard the term when someone in prison on the day of their execution is walking towards the chamber where where it's happened. Uh, They are called dead man walking. 500,000 people. 500,000 over a year's span walking into a nightmare death. Then we're all dead. The Bible says that before we trust Christ as Savior, that is us. If you can keep your place here and turn a few pages to Ephesians chapter 2. And I know this is very solemn thought, but it's the solemn thought that lifts us to the heights of grandeur when you realize what our plight was and then realize what Jesus did to, to save us from that. Ephesians chapter 2. In verse number one, the Bible said, and you hath he quickened, that means to make alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, some of the people Paul's writing to were religious people. Some of them were Jewish people who believed in the Jewish scriptures, yet they were still sinners by nature. For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Some were pagans, saved out of the Greek culture, worshiping idols and worshiping the heavens and, and, and all types of false gods and goddesses. Some of them, their worship was in, in, in vain and vulgar methods, uh, yet the Bible concluded all of them, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. He describes their past, wherein in time past, ye walked according to the course of this word. You just did what everybody else does. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I don't care how righteous you've tried to be. I don't care how good you've tried to be. I don't care how religious you've tried to be. Disobedience is at the heart of your very being. From our womb, the Bible says we come forth speaking lies. No one has ever had to been taught how to sin, how to do wrong, how to hate, how to steal, how to lie. Those things come to us by nature because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul says there, that's what you were. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's, that's what we are before God. We're not some prize to be won at the county fair. We're sinners, plain and simple. We've offended a holy God whose holiness we cannot even comprehend. But if you look in the Bible at everyone who got a glimpse of that holiness of God, Not a one of them walked away saying, I'm going to write a book about that and people are going to line up and want me to sign their Bible. Every one of them said, woe is me for I am undone. Every one of them said, as as Peter did, depart from me, Lord, for I'm, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When they saw the holiness of God, they realized their own unworthiness. And Paul says, that's what we were all by ourselves. But it goes on in that same passage. Look, if you would, verse 20, uh, verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4, but God. You realize if there was not a but God in there, we would still be that way. We would still be lost. We would still be dead men walking. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
for his great love wherewith we, he loved us, Amen. even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, for by grace ye are saved. Thank God for the but God. Thank God for Calvary. Thank God for what Robin Anna sang this morning, how deep the Father's love for us. For God so loved the world. What kind of a world did he love? Just read the headlines. We're no different today than they were in ancient Rome. And ancient Rome is no different than Babylon. And Babylon is no different than Adam and Eve were when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. But that is the world that God loved. But God, uh, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen. I have but one son. And we tease around an awful lot. I'll tease around and say my son is a lunatic, my favorite Bible verse. But that is my son. That is my son. And for any good, for any bad, it doesn't even matter. I love my son with all of my heart. And if there was a choice to be made of to who would live or die, whether it was going to be him or me, I would raise my hand and I would automatically take his place. I would not allow him to die if I could stop it. Do you understand? You and I were marked for death. We were dead in sins and trespasses. And the father volunteered. My son is going to come and he's going to die on the cross. He's going to pay for your sin. He doesn't have any. He's the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He is without a spot. He is without blemish. He never had an unclean thought. He never spoke an unclean word. His hands never did an unclean deed. But on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But God, every person in this room that names the name of Jesus Christ ought to be thanking God, but God. I'd be lost if it wasn't for God. I'd, be, I'd spend eternity in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, but God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to be my savior. Hallelujah. Uh, we, we need to learn, to, yeah, we need to learn to shout. We need to learn to clap just a little bit. Uh, we need to be more excited about this than, than, than about some football team winning a game. But sadly, it's, it, it's the other way around. Paul said, I want you to understand, it is that truth that motivates me, it's grabbed a hold of me, it constrains me, and everything about my life is measured and dictated by the love of Christ because I was dead. We were all dead. Can you go back to 2 Corinthians 5? The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. We were all dead and Christ died for everyone. Do you understand that phrase died for all was given twice in this passage? That if one died for all, verse 14 and verse 15, and that he died for all. Think about that for a moment. He died for all. There is no one beyond the scope of God's mercy. Amen. No one. Genesis chapter 4, when Cain brought the wrong sacrifice, instead of a blood sacrifice of a lamb, he brought the fruit of his own hands in labor. He was the first person trying to earn eternal life through his own good works, and God rejected it. God rejected it. But he didn't reject Cain out and out. He said, Cain, Cain, you can still make this right. 
you can still go offer the sacrifice that you're supposed to make. Do you realize God wasn't even going to throw Cain away when Cain rejected him? Cain became the first murderer, and God still had a measure of mercy for that man. Do you understand there's nobody beyond the scope of God's mercy? There are people beyond the scope of our mercy, and that's sad to say. There are people that have committed crimes and sins that are so heinous that we, we just don't even comprehend it. But you understand the love of God is so big that his mercy includes them as well. That but God was for them as well. That, that's hard for us to, to understand, but this is what's motivating Paul because, you see, Paul saw himself as one of those. I got saved at 14. I wasn't in a gang. Never smoked a cigarette. Now, my dad smoked heavy, two and a half packs a day, but he said, if I ever catch you smoking a cigarette, I will kill you. It was one of those don't do as I do, do as I say type things. You say, why didn't you smoke a cigarette? He said, I thought he might do it. I never drank alcohol. Never had an affair. I, I, I never, I, I, never I, was, I was the good kid. I was the nerd kid. I was the guy with a pocket protector here and all the pencils. And I, I, they didn't have calculators. They weren't invented yet. But if they did, I would have known what all the buttons were for. I was just the scrawny little guy um, I, 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 I got in my share of trouble, but in the grand scheme of things, it was just ordinary little boy ornery stuff. I wasn't like that. I wasn't like that, but I was still a sinner lost and undone. If there had not been a but God, this good boy would die and go to hell. I went to church every Sunday. I listened. I took it seriously. I didn't scoff at the pastor. I didn't glare at him. He didn't teach truth. He didn't teach Bible. I did not know that. But I listened to what he had to say, and I took it to heart. But I was lost as lost could be. I want you to understand, the Apostle Paul didn't see himself like that. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, you can turn there if you'd like. Paul just shares a bit of his testimony. He tells you, this is what I see myself as in the but God moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul writes and says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So I just thank the Lord for letting me serve him. I just thank the Lord that he's enabled me so that I can be in the ministry. But he talks about why he's so astounded that who, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, he hated the disciples of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, the Bible says, but Saul breathing out threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. If we were there before he got saved, uh, Saul of Tarsus would break into a service like this and he would have armed guards with him and he would be yanking us up, dragging us out the door. They would be kicking us. They'd be beating on us with sticks. They'd be throwing us in the back of wagons. They'd throw us into prison. Some he would condemn to death and he'd do it all with a smile on his face and the only crime we, we would have committed in his eyes were, were that we loved Jesus Christ and we claimed that Jesus was our savior. That offended him so badly he did that for a very long time breathing out threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord he said that's what I was verse 13 but I obtained mercy 
but I obtain mercy, that he died for all. If you're here this morning and you've never settled the matter where you're going to spend your eternity, you need to understand several things. That in the sight of God, the Bible says you are a sinner. For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. No, there's no exceptions to that. A sin is not just murder or drug dealing. A sin is lying, disobedience to parents, hatred, pride, sowing strife and discord. That's sin, sins which we're all guilty of. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need to understand in the sight of God, that means you are that Ephesians 2 crowd, dead in your sins and trespasses. You've offended a holy God and there is a penalty awaiting you. The wages of sin is death. Not just death where you, the body dies and gets placed in the ground, but a second death in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. You have to understand that's Bible truth. It's hard truth. It's negative truth. But we got to understand it before we can go any further. But once we understand that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God and we have a problem, God sends the good news saying, but God commendeth his what? His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's never said, clean up your act and I'll save you. He said, come as you are. You just come as you are because even when you clean up your act, you're still a sinner. God proved, demonstrated, showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what the cross was all about. It was Jesus becoming a sacrifice and bearing the penalty of my sin and your sin, of our sin. He died for all so that we don't have to. God doing that on our behalf, giving his only begotten son, was God giving us the greatest gift ever been offered. For the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A gift is an amazing thing, wonderful thing. A gift is something that we do not pay for. Someone offers you a gift for your birthday, for Christmas, for an anniversary, something like that. Uh, they, they, they hold it out and say, here's a gift for you. They don't ask you to fork over the money. They don't, add, they don't tell you, well, it costs this much, and, and, and as soon as you give me that money or start making payments on it, it's yours. If it's a gift, it's free. Am I right? Yeah. If you have to pay for it, it's a purchase. And most religions in the world teach uh, that, that you've got to somehow earn heaven, and, and you've got to give money and, you, and all of this kind of stuff. No, the eternal life is the gift of God. Right. The gift of God. It's not something you earn. It's not something yeah. you work for. Um, uh, if somebody offers you a gift, they don't say, go out and mow my lawn or shovel my snow or, or wash my car and then this gift is yours. It is yours and you don't have to do a thing except receive it. Amen. Except receive it. And see, there's where the rub comes in. Man's pride likes to step in and say, but I'm not that bad. Well, I have my own religion. Well, I go to church. Well, I'm glad that you're not that bad. I'm glad that you have religion. I'm glad that you go to church, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that any of those things will get you to heaven. In fact, Paul, who wrote the words about the, the mercy of God that was extended to him, you understand, he, he was at the top of his religious echelon. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, as touching the law blameless. This was the guy that prided himself on human righteousness but his eyes got open one day and he realized that he was a sinner and he was lost. And unless he received Christ as Savior, he would stay lost. He was a dead man walking. 
He received mercy when he trusted Christ as Savior. You got to make the choice. What am I going to do with Christ? Receive him, reject him. John chapter 1 says he came unto his own. Jesus came to the Jewish people and his own received him not. We have no king but Caesar. Away with this man. Crucify him. His own received him not on a national level. But scattered throughout that nation, there were men and women and children just like us today. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. I realize I'm speaking to a vast crowd this morning here and on the live stream. And many of you, you can look back to the time and the place where you called on Christ to save you. For me, it was a teenage boy at the age of 14, rode a bus to church, heard the gospel, and I knew I needed that. And I met with somebody who took me through the scripture, and I prayed and trusted Christ as my Savior. And I have the assurance of God's word, but God. And I'm saved. But maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're listening this morning. You've not yet made that decision. Can I ask you, what's holding you back? Why not? Are you afraid about what people are going to think? Are you going to let pride come in? Well, I think I'm fine just as I am. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says. And that's what you got to trust. It's what you got to trust. A little later this morning, just a few minutes, there'll be what we call the invitation and an opportunity to come let somebody take a Bible and not show you how to be a Baptist, not show you how to join a church, not show you how to turn over a new leaf, but how to receive God's gift of eternal life, Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. For whosoever that he died for all, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Question, if somebody tried to kill your family, and I'm being literal, someone tried to kill your family, would you go seek them out to do something nice for them? Yes or no? Saul of Tarsus killed some of God's children. Stephen is one. Paul describes himself as, I was a murderer. That's what he did. Do you realize on the road to Damascus, Saul wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking Saul. Knocked him off his horse, knocked him onto the ground, and spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I've been convicting you. I've been getting my message and you've been fighting back against me. You've been kicking against me. Aren't you getting tired of that? And finally, that arrogant, tough man said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the murderer became a minister of Christ. The persecutor became a preacher of the gospel. You say, why? But God who is rich in mercy. Go back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These two verses, verses 14 and 15, were part of a scripture passage that was preached several weeks ago at a funeral that I attended for Pastor Chris Baker, who pastored for decades in in, uh, Rhode Island. And as those verses were read, there weren't, they weren't commented on a, a, a lot. It's just like the Holy Spirit grabbed the hold of my heart. The Holy Spirit brought me under conviction as I asked myself the question, so what is my motivation? 
Am I doing what I do because I love Christ or because that's what I'm supposed to do? Is it the love of Christ constraining me or are there other things that are more important to me? But I read on in verse 15 and that he died for all. And here's, here's Paul talking. He's died for all. Here's what, it, here's what it ends up in, that they which live, that's you and I that get saved, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Do you please understand that getting saved is not your free ticket to heaven and then you go your merry way? It's not what it is. Some years ago, one of the senior classes uh, asked my wife and I to, to be their chaperone to go to Disney World in Florida. Um, because I'm an amputee, I can get one of those fast pass things. I don't know what they call it now. It's been a number of years where we just skip the line and go right to the front and watch all the rest of you stick out your tongue at us. And, and, and me and whoever's in my group, we go on first. How many know what I'm talking about? You say, did you do that? <laughs> I'm going to take advantage of all of that. That's why I got it. That's why I got that in the parking. Um, so we're doing that, but they kind of modified it. What they did, they said, you come back at such and such a time, and you show us this. We already got it registered in our computer. You come back at 1.10, and you'll be ushered straight to the front of the line, and you'll get on the very next car that comes in, and you're on the ride. So we had the fast pass. We're in. My name is registered on all of that, and from that point on, we just get to walk around the park, have lunch, do whatever we want to do as long as we're back there. By 1.10, we get on. I think some people think that's what salvation is. I got saved. Yeah, I'm going to heaven, but then they live like the devil. They don't act like a Christian. They don't talk like a Christian. There's, there's no change. Well, what happened if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. No, we don't get sinless and perfect when we get saved. We will someday when we get to heaven, but we get changed. There ought to be something different about us. Paul said, look, those of us that got saved, we were dead. Christ died for us, but God, uh, he, he stepped in on our behalf. And, and because he did that, uh, we don't anymore live unto ourselves. We live unto him. That's what it's all about. I jotted down a couple things that day at the funeral. I, I had a hard time translating them because I was writing them so quick. I'm just going to read them off to you and we'll be done. Here's the first thing I thought, what's it mean to live unto myself instead of unto Christ? When we do not assemble with the church, which is the body of Christ, for, for which Christ gave himself, we are living unto ourselves and not unto Christ. Just, just think about that. The book of Ephesians says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The church is called the body of Christ, is it not? Over and over again. When I don't assemble with the body of Christ, I'm not living unto Christ. I'm living unto myself. Now I realize sickness happens. I was in the hospital last week. Okay? Uh, thank the Lord for live stream. Um, I, I wasn't skipping church. Um, there, was, there was not a lot of church. And I understand uh, things like that happen. I understand sometimes there are, there's work issues and things like that. But I mean, I could go, I just don't. I just don't. I'm living under myself and not under Christ. I, I'm not living under the one who was the but God for me. The second thing I scribbled down, 
when we do not nurture our marriages, talking to husbands and wives, when we do not nurture our marriages, which are a picture of Christ's love for the church, we are living for ourselves and not unto Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 says again, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should, uh, it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth, cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Amen. When we take our marriage vows lightly and take them for granted, when we do not actively nurture that relationship, it's supposed to be a picture of Christ's unending, sacrificial, selfless love for the church. I'm living unto myself, not unto Christ. You see how this is supposed to translate? Third thing I jotted down, when we do not love and forgive one another as Christ also loves and forgives us, we're living unto ourselves and not unto Christ. Somebody here that's never been wronged. That's all of us have been wronged then. Jesus said, it is impossible, but that offenses shall come. We can't stop it from coming, but then we are placed in that position of how we're going to handle it. Here's what the Bible says how we should do it, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. God saved you. God saved you forever. You cannot lose that salvation. You cannot be separated from the love of God. And, and Paul reminds us of that. He says, therefore let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor that's behind the scenes nitpicking and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. When we harbor grudges and we refuse to forgive, when we, for, when we for, refuse to forgive and forget, when God forgives us, he casts our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. Amen. That's a never-ending distance. He declared twice in the book of Hebrews, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Amen. When we refuse to do that, we are living unto ourselves and not unto Christ because we're not picturing him at all. And I understand that can be tough, but there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Amen. The grace of God is sufficient for all things, the Apostle Paul said. Here's fourth thing I jotted down. When we do what we do out of duty or obligation, instead of out of the love of Christ for us, 
we dishonor that love. And we are living unto ourselves and not unto Christ. After all he's done for me, when I just take that for granted and I just show up because of paychecks involved, or I show, that, show up because my friends are going to be there, or I show up because my parents make me, or I show up because I have to, because I teach or I do this, that, or the other thing, I'm dishonoring the love of Christ. And I'm living unto myself, going through the motions here and pouring my passion somewhere else. And I'm dishonoring the love of Christ. I jotted those four things down. I've, I've got the piece of paper uh, in, in my study uh, where it is, and, and I'm, I'm jotting those things down. And I realize my wife's in heaven, but that, that truth about the marriage issue um, is, is true even though she's in heaven. It's true for me to say it now, whether I'm married or not, because it's Bible. Amen. Are we living unto Christ? I mean, truly. Are we living unto ourselves? Paul tells us in this same chapter in 2 Corinthians 5 that one day we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, on that day, you're not going to answer to me and I'm not going to answer to you. I know people that think everybody in the world answers to them, but it's not true. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and I will stand there and give account of myself. It's not about heaven or hell. That got settled the day I got saved. It's about reward or loss of reward. Amen. And I want you to understand motive is going to have a lot to do with that day. It's going to have an awful lot to do with that day. Trina knew when I gave her a kiss, if I was doing it just because she expected me to give her a kiss, because I wanted one, she knew. She knew if I was holding her hand just because I was trying to get out of some little bit of trouble I'd gotten myself in, I'd forgotten something or didn't do something I was supposed to do. And Now, she knew whether it was that or whether it was just, I loved her. She knew. And she's a human being, and she knew. God is God. We're not fooling him. We're not fooling him. Does the love of Christ constrain us? Or have we just forgotten it? Taken it for granted because we hear about it all the time. Do not ever let that happen to you. There's no better motivation. There's no other motivation that God will accept. If you would bow your head and close your eyes, you've listened so intently well, and I appreciate that.